Welcome to the Alliance Bible Church Podcast. We exist to be a healthy community, living and sharing the good news of Jesus with neighbors and nations. Amen. Well, good morning. <laughs> this is a little bit of a different uh, situation. So uh, like Wayne said, uh, my name is Wynn. It's spelled W-I-N. Um, and so there's, there's nothing fancy about it. There, that's just the way my name is spelled. Um, it's, it's part of my uh, Chinese heritage. And so that's another thing that's a little different is I serve at a Chinese church. So looking out, there's not many Chinese people here. So it's a little bit of a different feel for me this morning. Uh, the church that I um, serve at is located off of Foster Road in Southeast Portland. So if you ever want to come by, I'm, I guarantee you we'll feed you, if anything else. <clears throat> but I'm really humbled to be here with you this morning. Uh, when Wayne gave me the call, he's like, hey, uh, how about you come preach at my church today? And I was like, uh, you know, I thought about it for a few days and kind of, you know, kind of looked at my schedule and looked uh, to see how that could fit. Um, and I said, yeah, sure. So this is probably the only time you'll see me, so if you don't like what I have to say today, just, just blame him, okay? <laughs> Sounds good? But uh, since I'm new here and you guys are getting to know me, let me tell you a little bit about myself. Um, if I know it doesn't look like it, but I just turned 35 a few days ago. Like, yeah, I know, right? I'm just like, woo, I just look great. I'm the youngest of four siblings. I have uh, two older sisters and one older brother. Um, and we're children of immigrant Chinese parents who moved here uh, about 1970. They met each other in the restaurant industry here, got married, and they had us. Uh, I grew up just across the river in Vancouver, Washington. Um, and I was educated, but in Portland from first grade through high school at a private Christian school uh, close to Park Rose High School out there. Um, and then I did my undergrad at George Fox University down in Newburgh. I have been a diehard Portland Trailblazer fan since I was six years old, and I am reluctantly a fan of the Seattle Mariners because they have torn my heart out way too many times. <clears throat> I enjoy food, shenanigans, and talking about Star Wars. So if any of you want to dissect the new Rise of Skywalker trailer, I am here for it. I will talk to you about it all day long. But at my, at my current church, uh, or actually before I was uh, um, at the church I'm at now, I was in youth ministry in different capacities down in Sherwood, Oregon from 2007 to 2013. Um, in two different churches, not at the same time, that's a long story, um, and also at the local YMCA while holding down different jobs at the same time. Um, after that, in 2013, the fall, I made my way over to the state of Massachusetts uh, to pursue a Master of Divinity from 2013 to 2016. And then I graduated, and for some reason, the church I'm at hired me, and they said, ah, you seem like a good fit, and then they just hired me, and I came back here to my own backyard, and it's been great uh, ever since. Um, so as you can tell, I've been kind of all over the place, um, but here's where it gets interesting. During my last year of seminary in the fall of 2015, I met Josephine, who is my wife. So some of you have met her. Uh, she's here with us this morning. Uh, and we got married this past summer, actually. So uh, not only do I look really young, but also I just got married recently. But <clears throat> um, the, 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 the thing is, if you're doing the math, we met in 2015. So, oh yeah, we got to the picture a little early, but that's okay. Um, 
the, we, 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 got, we met in 2015, um, and then we only got married this summer. So we've been friends for about four years altogether. What was happening during those three years? Well, the long story short, uh, she liked me kind of on and off. I kind of liked her on and off, but I didn't know she liked me um, for three years. Um, it was pretty shocking when she finally revealed to me so that, it, that it took three years for me to realize what was going on. Um, but the point is, she's really patient and I'm extremely blind. So that's all that matters. But for 95% of my life, I was a happy bachelor. I could do what I want. I could move around and live in a pigsty for long stretches without even flinching. I have amazing memories living with different people of different walks of life, eating what I wanted, purchasing what I wanted, staying up late, playing loud music, and not having to worry about anyone else's well-being as far as the day-to-day responsibilities were concerned. But the summer, that all changed. Now, I have to wear no strips at night so I don't have to snore like a bear. I actually eat more vegetables. I can't spend money on music gear anymore or Star Wars things. I'm highly discouraged from wearing my raggedy yet comfortable clothes that I've owned for a really long time. My utility bills are a little higher than I remember. My house doesn't look like a bachelor pad anymore. Friends who have come by my house are like, Wow, it's really good that a woman lives here now. Like, they've said that. Whenever anyone asks me to do something with them, I say the six words almost every husband knows, which is, let me check with my wife. Right? Who here, husband, any of you ever said that before? All of you have said that at some point. But my life has changed. But here's the truth. It's not easy to change your life. Don't get me wrong, I love my wife, and I love these changes, these new changes. I honestly don't miss the lonely nights with her, without her, um, sorry. I don't miss the lonely nights with my dog, so I don't want to confuse that. But I love having conversations with her every day. I love sharing my home with her. I love being with her, period. But it hasn't been easy because I'm learning what it means to live as a husband, Everyone here who is a husband or is married or has transitioned in any way, shape, or form, it doesn't happen overnight. I mean, yes, we got married and it's like the, 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 our officiant said, like, I now declare your husband and wife and boom. But it's not like I just switched over to being a husband and knew automatically all the things I had to do to be a husband. That's impossible. You don't start putting the dishes away automatically. You don't automatically put the seat down on the toilet, Right? You don't always consider her needs above your own automatically. You don't always remember not to have cilantro in the food because she finds cilantro disgusting. (laughs) You don't automatically know how to share a bed. You don't automatically know all to any of the things that you do when you're married. You You don't know how to do that automatically. You have to learn. You're two different people coming together, sharing these different things. When my oldest sister saw me the day that I was getting married, she said, I can't believe my little brother is getting married. And really, I find that hard to believe too. (laughs) But I'm learning every day what it means to sacrificially love my wife. I'm learning every day how to listen to her and respond accordingly. I'm learning every day what to do when she's not feeling well or feeling frustrated by her responsibilities. 
I'm learning to let go of the to-do list from time to time so that I could just simply be with her. I'm learning to be a husband. And as my love grows for her, it's informing my decisions and actions, which in turn is helping me become a better husband. And y'all have been learning what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, to live in this upside-down kingdom from his famous Sermon on the Mount, specifically the Beatitudes found in the beginning of Matthew chapter 5. For those of you in the room who have been following Jesus, whether only a few weeks or a few decades, like being a newlywed or a new parent or a new student at a new school or a new employee at a new job, you don't know how to do those roles perfectly from the start. And Jesus knows that. Today we're looking at the eighth and final beatitude of Matthew in chapter 5, verse 10. But before we look at it, I want to make sure we're solid on the context. When reading scripture, it's always helpful to have context. We are never to read scripture void of context, community, or God's spirit. Jesus is in Galilee, right? In northern Israel, if you know your geography, your ancient geography. He just started his earthly ministry. In chapter 4 of Matthew, he started recruiting his disciples And he was healing very sick people while preaching the good news of the kingdom. He got people's attention. Crowds were forming around him. So he went to the mountainside away from the crowd, the suffocating crowd, and gathered with his disciples, the 12 that he recruited, those who have committed to following Jesus. Most people, when they read chapter 5, they miss this little detail is that this Sermon on the Mount was specifically for those who have committed their life to Jesus, those disciples specifically. Can you turn back to that picture that you guys showed earlier of my wife and I, the the beautiful girl, and then me kind of being astounded that she married me? When my wife and I got, got married, what you guys are actually seeing in this picture is something called a tea ceremony. This is a typical Chinese custom at weddings when the newlyweds would kneel down in front of elders in our family and serve our elders tea. So like all of my siblings and my parents and if my grandparents are alive or just any relative that I had who is older than me. And while being served tea, the family elders would hold court. When I'm sitting there holding tea to them, they could say whatever they want. And I mean whatever they want. My sister really loved the idea. But it's a way, this is a way for new couples to honor those who have gone before them, to honor the people that have kind of not paved the way, so to speak, but at least to give wisdom and to give advice um, to newlyweds, giving tips or just, just like, hey, don't screw this up. Like things like that, how to commit to each other. And Jesus, in a way, is doing that. At the Sermon on the Mount, he's saying, are you committed to following me? I want you to listen to what I have to say. And this is where it gets interesting. In the ancient world, it was believed that if God or the gods favored you, you were wealthy or in positions of power. And following someone like Jesus at that time felt like an opportunity for people to gain either of those things. What most in the ancient world were wondering was simply, how do I get the good life? And Jesus was answering that question. 
how do I get the good life? But as you may have been learning the last several weeks, the crowd and his disciples were hearing things they probably did not expect at all. But as you may have been learning and seeing all these things, you look at the word blessed, you know, hashtag blessed if you're with the young crowd, right? (laughs) But the original language meant more like happy, not the feeling happy, but just a state of place or congratulations. Some translations say happy is the person who is poor in spirit, not necessarily blessed like I've been blessed with showered with a lot of things. That's more of the more accurate translation. This kingdom will operate very differently. Those who are in the happy or congratulations or blessed place. And Jesus is saying that the kingdom is not only available now, it's available to people who don't have hope. Who would never imagine it was available to them in the first place. Just a quick review. Verses 3 through 6 is about the poor in spirit, those who are in mourning, those who are in meekness or hungering for righteousness. They are all marks of people who are heavily relying on God's provision in their life. The outcasts of society who are not lifted up on pedestals or in headlines or trending on social media. Dallas Willard rewarded some, rewarded some of the Beatitudes to help us understand who Jesus was talking about. Next slide, please. It says, blessed are the spiritual zeros, the spiritually bankrupt, deprived and deficient, the spiritual beggars, those without a wisp of religion. When the kingdom of the heavens comes upon them. Just a rewarding, a reimagination of what Jesus was saying. Among the crowd were people who did not have hope at all. They were rejected by the elite simply because they didn't fit the mold of what the world thought was right and popular. They were seen as unfavored by God. And then in verses 7 to 9, Jesus highlights those who are living for God. People who show mercy who are, to people who are not like them. Or pursuing God with everything they have, being pure in heart. Or by attempting to gen, genuinely make peace with the people around them. Again, people who live for God like this are not put up in bright lights for the whole world to see. All these descriptions of people facing these Unsavory, unpopular situations were highlighted by Jesus, and everyone would have been confused. Why are the outcasts being highlighted here? And finally, we look at verse 10, another category altogether. Verse 10 of Matthew 5, which is our text this morning, it says this Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What a statement. Persecuted. Now, the word persecuted, this isn't like you did something wrong and you get the retribution you deserve if you get caught. Not that kind of persecution. Although sometimes people mistake that. But Jesus is saying that there are people out there in the world who are doing the right thing. Doing what God values. Not what we value, but what God values. And they're getting punished for it. 
The word persecuted here in the original language is actually in a weird grammatical spot. I'm not going to bore you with that because I get bored with it. But it's kind of hard to explain. But one way to translate this word persecuted is to say those who have been persecuted. At this point in the narrative, in this story, none of Jesus' followers have been tortured or killed or victimized or mocked following Jesus yet. Simply hasn't happened. But it is a declaration that following Jesus, who embodies righteousness, will lead to being mocked, villainized, and possibly tortured or killed. Hearing this would have been a stark warning to anyone even considering following Jesus. They were considering the good life as like, okay, if I follow this dude, I'll be all right. But Jesus is like, "Uh uh-uh, it's not going to go that way. But the thing is, this last beatitude shapes how we've been reading these last few verses. This last beatitude helps us understand Jesus' kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is available even to those who feel like it wasn't available to them in the first place. It's available to people who never knew the option of having the kingdom on the table. It's available to the beggar on the side of the road who didn't know he had an invitation to the banquet. It's available to people who were seen as undesirable or not talented enough or didn't have the right opinions or followed the latest trends or felt trapped by their own brokenness. But this last beatitude helps us clear something up about this list. First, this is not a requirement list. Jesus is not saying that you must become meek or be mourning or become poor in spirit or to seek persecution in order to get into the kingdom of heaven. That's not what he's saying because that becomes legalism. And that would also mean that Jesus is sanctioning torture and death. And these are things my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ around the world are experiencing right now. And I guarantee you those brothers and sisters are not wanting torture and death. Second, in Jesus' day, there was a group of people who were defining what it meant to be in the kingdom of heaven. You guys know who I'm talking about? Pharisees, the religious leaders, the people who were defining those things for the people. They were interpreting the law. And in reality, they were actually seen as the good guys in Jesus' day. They really were. They thought they had cornered the market on how to live rightly until this Jesus guy shows up, right? I guarantee you a few of them were in the crowd that day listening to Jesus because Jesus as a character is way too big a person to ignore and their curiosity was probably way too big for them to just push away. Jesus' words, in a sense, was a spit in the face for those leaders because those leaders were rejecting people that Jesus was lifting up. The leaders of that day were highlighting who were the winners and the losers of the world, who could earn God's favor, and who doesn't get the privilege. But Jesus was saying that his kingdom is available to all people, including the ones who were deemed low and insignificant. Third, this specific beatitude highlights people who are on the outskirts of society, 
because they simply will not go with the crowd. Going with the crowd because it's popular, going with the crowd because everyone is doing it, going with the crowd because you want to blend in, not stand out. It's highlighting that aspect of our society. Sometimes we don't like to stand out. We just want to do what everybody else is doing. This beatitude is about people who are doing the right thing in God's eyes, not our eyes, God's eyes, and are getting pummeled by society for it. And this could mean refusing the instructions of your boss to cut corners to save money and help the bottom line. Or getting ahead of your coworkers by back, backstabbing them because you need that promotion for your family. Pulling over to the side of the road because someone's car has broken down, so you're probably going to be late for that meeting, that recital, or that sports practice. It could mean moving into a not-so-nice neighborhood so that you can be a representative of Jesus to people who have never set foot in a church. Or going to a school that doesn't score as high because God has gifted you to help those who have little or nothing to work with. Or not joining the gossip about that weird-looking student or coworker who just doesn't fit into your space or ideals about who God is or who God loves. Turning away from the spiteful partisan political arguments that split friends and families apart because believing in Jesus' kingship means more than a political party or an ideal. It's living differently than what the world expects. You don't get fanfare for it, fanfare for it. In reality, you'll probably not get noticed at all. Living for Jesus isn't meant to be easy, and in the world's eyes, it actually seems counterproductive. We are to live a different life altogether. But here's the truth. All of you have been hearing about this upside-down kingdom for a few weeks, correct? And, you know, we're supposed to live differently. We're supposed to do all that. So I'll get in the kingdom, right? We're supposed to live that way. That's not it, obviously. You see, what most people miss about the Sermon on the Mount, and specifically the Beatitudes, is that we're always thinking, are we going to get some kind of reward for this, for this life we're living? Because some of you in this room may actually be in these categories that are like, I am poor in spirit, or I am depressed, or I'm fighting anxiety, or I don't even know when my next paycheck is coming in. So are we supposed to do something? Are we supposed to act this way in order to get the kingdom? It's kind of like when you're raising a child and you're going to a public place and you tell them, hey, if you behave publicly, I'll give you a Hershey kiss when you get home. Like it's that kind of bribing. We kind of think this way about the Sermon on the Mount. But let me give you some perspective. The Israelites have this unique history. They have this event in their history called the Exodus. Who's heard of the Exodus? Or at least, who here has seen the Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston in it? Some of you know what I'm talking about? Thank, yeah, this is good for the older crowd. This is good. But yeah, that Exodus. I'm going way back here. The people of Israel were slaves in Egypt for a really long time, right? They were finally freed, so long story short, finally freed, crossed the Red Sea, you know, with the really terrible special effects, and wandered into the wilderness for 40 years because of their whining and groaning, and then finally end up at the front door 
of the promised land. The land God said he himself would provide. And at this front door, Moses, their leader, gives the thousands upon thousands of Israelites one final instruction before entering the promised land, which is all found in the fifth book of the Bible, Deuteronomy. And I'll sum it up for you, because Deuteronomy is kind of hard to get through, but it's also quite fascinating. I recommend for all of you to read it and to really see what's going on. Well, this is what's happening. Moses is telling the Israelites, now, you're going to be residents of this new land. It's been given to you by God himself. You are all to remain faithful to God, serve no other gods, and keep your covenant with him, your promise with him. If you do, you'll be blessed, and if you don't, you'll be cursed. Love God and love people well. That's essentially what Moses was telling the people of Israel. God wanted his people to live very differently than all the neighbors that were surrounding the promised land, even the people who were already occupying the land itself. God wanted his people to be a light in the dark places of the world. And there were lots of laws and things that were repeated in Deuteronomy. It's like, this is how you distinguish yourself. Like, don't eat bacon. I can't imagine not eating bacon, but that's what they were told. But... If you have been reading scripture all the way from the beginning to where we are now in the text, you'll know this. God's people have rebelled over and over and over. I see the head nods and over and over and just keep saying over and over in your head for a long, long time. And Moses in this long speech knew God's people were going to choose rebellion over over. But he gave them hope. Moses knew that one day God will reach his people and change their hearts to move towards him and to live like him. And that day came right before the Sermon on the Mount. The one we've been studying for the last few weeks, or you have been studying for the last few weeks. Because Jesus, God with us, came into the world and he acted. He worked. He touched the lives of the broken, the outcasts, the suicidal, the rebellious, the sinners, the diseased, the depressed, the anxious, the hopeless. And said this on the next slide from Luke. And says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recover sight for the blind and to set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What we miss about the kingdom of heaven is that it is Jesus's very being himself. It's not just some monetary thing that we gain. The kingdom of heaven is available because Jesus is available. His presence, his love, his mercy, his righteousness, his glory. Everything about Jesus is the kingdom of heaven. Full stop. And that kingdom of heaven is available to everybody. It's available because Jesus moved first. Not because we did something. Again, the Beatitudes is not us becoming that so we can get the the kingdom of heaven. It's Jesus saying, I'm here, and those people who don't feel like they belong, they do belong. 
He moved into our world. He lived like us. He ate, he slept, he got tired, he woke up. And then he died a physical excruciating death because Jesus moved first and he offered himself to us. You see, this list that Jesus said isn't a requirement list because he knows that we can't live up to this standard. The shocking message of the Beatitudes is that it is available for everybody and there's nothing anybody can do to get that kingdom except through Jesus himself. We tend to get lists like this. We tend to twist it into something that we have to do in order to earn salvation. No, Jesus is saying like, no, it's available to everybody because I made it available. Jesus is saying that because he is here, the kingdom is here. He's saying that following him and loving him means you get to have him. The reward is him. The reason we celebrate Christmas, it's right around the corner. I'm already listening to Christmas music. I know I'm one of those people. But I listen to it because those songs tell me about the hope and the promise that he would be here with us. And he showed up. And the reason we celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday is because he came here to fulfill the promise he made a long time ago, right after mankind fell from God's presence, God's kingdom. And in the greatest ironic twist in all of history, a death fit for a murdering thief was placed on a king's shoulders so that us rebels would become kings and queens in his kingdom. God promised that he would change hearts. He promised that his people would become salt and light in the world, which y'all will get to later. But he also knows that you will encounter resistance as you fall more in love with Jesus every day. And I hope you are. You'll take on his kingdom values naturally. Kind of like as I learn to love my wife, I'm becoming more and more like a husband every day. And as you are loving Jesus more and more, his values, his kingdom values will start permeating through you to the point where it's super obvious that you belong to his kingdom, not any nation, not any tribe, not anything else, but his his kingdom only. But the thing is, his kingdom values go up against this world's values. Absolutely. People came to Jesus wanting to know what to look for, what to have in order to have this good life. And it still happens today. People look to Jesus or different gurus or whatever to find the good life, the easy path. But that's not the answer that Jesus gave. He didn't answer that question at all. Because really, he gave himself. Because Jesus himself is the good life. Being with him is the good life. Not in earthly treasures, not popularity, right opinions or experiences, old, young, technologies, new philosophies, ideas, or forms of power. None of that stuff gives us the good life. Only Jesus himself gives you the good life. For the kingdom of heaven is available to you, to anyone. Learn to love him and to follow him.
Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your word, this beatitude that the kingdom of heaven is available because you made yourself available to us. And that you died for us and you defeated death. We thank you, Lord, that you gave us this word, these beatitudes, that we can really spread this good news that anybody can be in your kingdom. And that's a good hope to hope in. That's a good hope to live into. Help us to remember that in our actions and our words and our thoughts throughout this week. And thank you, Lord, for this opportunity for you to speak through me, through your spirit, and that we continue to worship you. We pray these things in your awesome and holy name. Thank you for checking out the podcast today. We hope you enjoyed it. For more information, you can visit alliancebible.church.